to Growing Through Grief. I'm your host, Diana Curtis. Growing Through Grief is a weekly sprinkle of education and inspiration to help you take action that leads to personal freedom and greatness. I share powerful conversations with grief experts, spiritual advisors, and other courageous souls in this transformational podcast. I believe with the right support and the power of community, you can eliminate unnecessary prolonged grief. I'm here to teach you how to normalize, recognize, and use grief as a growth tool. I've been a champion for growth for decades since the loss of my mother. Together, we are growing. I'll give you weekly tips and small steps that will move the needle forward so that you are experiencing a healthy inner relationship with yourself. Let's get started. So hello there and welcome back to another episode of the Growing Through Grief podcast. I am your host, Diana Curtis. While the month of May is already behind us, I've just completed a 31-day adventure of freedom, unconditional love, connection. The focus has been on self-compassion, self-forgiveness, and overall self-care for myself. It was my birthday month, and I am spinning with joy right now. And as I start this new month, it's June 1st, I am aiming to support anyone who doesn't feel that same freedom that I just described, but instead they feel invisible, isolated, separated, insignificant, and alone in this big old world with 75 plus million people. Now, I didn't want to have this conversation by myself. I wanted to share the conversation with someone else who has also felt invisible most of her life. And there were very reason, various reasons why she felt that way. And we'll get into some of that later into the conversation. So let me describe my guest. She is at the tender age of 75 and she's ready to take the world on. She's a motivating influencer. She's an author, a podcast guest, and she's referred to as the queen of courage on Instagram. Her sparkle, her passion, her youthful appearance is just evident. Her mental strength and faith has given her a healthy, healthy lifestyle. Now she's trained as a behavior scientist and I'm very familiar with that field because I retired from the CDC and there were behavior scientists all over the place. And what I know about them is they're very curious and they're always seeking new possibilities. That's who my guest is. And her name is Sharon. One last thing about her, her ultimate purpose is to help others matter outside of their profession or who they are at work and so that they can live a meaningful life with impact and wisdom and confidence. 
and so that they can find their inner spark like she has found hers. Hello, Sharon. Hello, Diana. Nice to be here today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Yes, nice to have you. So did I miss anything? What else would you like to share with the audience around who you are as an individual and why you are considered an expert to talk about aloneness, isolation, being invisible, and maybe a little bit about your healing process after you retired. Now that's a lot in one thing. So maybe just start with sharing with the audience who you are in terms of dealing with feelings invisible. Yes, yes. I um let me just say being in the middle of five you you tend to be invisible anyway because there's the younger ones and the older ones and um i was uh and i was the only one that went to college so uh having just a you know i grew up on a farm and just working on a farm was not a life and yet um as probably as young as um 10 12 14 years old i kind of didn't want to be seen because my older sister was getting a lot of attention by my dad and i just kept saying i thank heavens he keeps his hands off me so it became kind of a vow that i said to myself you know 100 times and um i so you know my my recipe for being safe was to be diligent in my in my uh, classes and, and not be rock the boat, be uh, get good grades and be obedient because that would probably mean I could be safe that way in my home. But um, and yet um, I'm going to slip in the positive thing about that was having as a teenager wanting to know what my potential was, you know, I what's life going to bring me? And I actually had a recurring dream three, four times um, when about five, six years old and, and we we're in, mom was driving the car and, and I, um, somehow the, the dream storyline was that mom was going to like give or sacrifice one of us kids and which one would it be, you know? Oh no, mama, I want to see what life's about. I remember that was the line each time the dream happened and I'm still looking at what is life about, you know? But, um, you know, so I studied, got my my uh education and apply myself to work and don't rock the boat and just be uh responsible reliable and all that but there's not much spark in that you know you're just doing what you're expected kind of and being the good employee the good uh contributor but um it wasn't until i retired uh well the week before i retired i uh, started coaching school. And um, I actually told a story, you know, you're still getting to know your colleagues and your instructors and so forth. And I happened to mention that the next weekend I was going to be going to my girlfriend's birthday party. And I sent her an email that stuck up my neck a little bit and said, well, I'm going to be wearing a hat to your birthday party. I, I hope that's okay. This was my hat. <laughs> And the instructors actually asked me to bring my hat in the next day for class 
And each time we took a break, I, I put on a different hat. So there was, there was kind of a subconscious, um, something in my spirit, I guess, that wanted to be seen. I was, I didn't understand it at that time, but later I, about six months later, I was coming back from break for uh, school again, classes, and I stomped my foot and slapped the table and I said, it's not okay to be invisible. Where did that, it was one of those things that just kind of burst out. It wasn't premeditated at all. And now I, I realized I had, had actually taken a profile um, about six, eight weeks before this, and it called me an influencer. Me, an influencer? You, you, I, don't, I don't think you got it right. <laughs> you know, that's probably at the bottom of the list, not the top of the list, but they put it at the top of the list. And, and so I started with that profile, which is usually, um, uh, you know, science, you know, it's, it's, it's the truth because we measured it. <laughs> And um, and that's what I started taking baby steps as if maybe there's something there and I should see about it, be willing to be open to that, you know, that courageous thing that I'd like to do. And um, and then I, so I uh, was contacted about doing a podcast and um, they said I was engaging and, um, sounded confident or something. They energized, I guess they, was their word. So they actually um, hooked me to having, uh, doing a series of six months of um, podcasts on their program. And it seemed more of a scam than it did uh, legitimate publicity. But uh, So may, may I interrupt you there for a little bit? I want to capture some of what you just said. It was a lot. Um, the question was around your experience of being invisible. And I heard you say you did not want to be seen for personal reasons related to your father and your sister. Uh, can we go back to that a little bit? Is that, is it okay? Um, Cause I'm hearing, you know, since we always talk about grief here, the, the question is always, are you willing, are you able to share any of your significant grief experiences that created this desire to be, to not be seen? Yeah, there there could still be some healing needed there, but I, um, my, my older sister had a baby by my dad and so not having, you know, I kind of, I was one of these people that stayed away kind of, and yet one of my significant pain points as a teenager is that I would get ridiculed for my size. I was bigger than people my size. And so my brother especially would call me blue elephant. And um, my dad was ridiculing me one night at the kitchen, at the dining table. I got so... Um, didn't like where it was going and I you know being obedient I actually stood up from the table and started to walk away because I didn't want to eat if I had to put up with that kind of message ridiculing me for being taller and bigger and um 
oh, you actually came by that legally, Sharon, because your grandfathers on both sides are taller than, I was taller than my parents, for example. And so he tried to make logical sense, but, you know, it was it was hurting my spirit because I was being um, made fun of. Yeah, yeah. And nobody wants, no one wants to be made fun of. So I'm curious, you went through this childhood experience where you were ridiculed and made fun of along with some other things that you're like, I don't want to be seen, so I'm just going to be invisible in this world. I'm curious, how did that show up for you? How did it show up in your life as you got older, once you were no longer in your parents' home? Well, I was I was pretty, one of the messages I did get from home that I realized just a couple of weeks ago how much it has impacted me is that I had a, uh, my parents would would encourage us to be um, because we were Christians and we couldn't dance and we couldn't um, you know go to bars and drink and all this. Um, they they gave us the message that we're different on purpose. We're not like everybody else, and you will be made fun of or or well today's term I guess would be bullied somewhat. So we learned to walk a different path culturally because of our faith and that gave me a sense of authenticity i am different and i can um, stand strong and it's okay to be different and it gave me like i guess a little bit more of a backbone so when um when it came to like I, I'm starting to work on some plans to do a loneliness community and I dealt with loneliness way back maybe 22 24 years old and it, I realize now that that strength to have a backbone and be authentic came from some of the messages from home that were different and it's and, and we can be different because we're strong enough to to handle any judgment that you know, puts us in this tight culture, you know. Yeah. So I'm hearing you say you were uniquely different. Um, you had a religious faith background, but I also heard some things that you might have thought didn't align in terms of your sister having a baby for your father by your father? Yeah. Did that impact you at all in terms of trusting the world, people out in the world, or men for that matter? Yeah, it had a lot. I I actually didn't know concretely the end of that story until about 10, 15 years later. And at one point, because I think my family knew that I was different and I, yet they never talked about it to me. I still feel like there's a certain rule that they abide by regarding me. And I don't know what it is, but um, I, I, when I was ready to know this full secret, 
um, you know, it's like God had prepared my heart to hear it. And so I let my mind wander um, this one Saturday. And I remember picking up my sister's diary and making a few pages of it, not many, but there she wondered um, whether, you know, she would have a boy or girl and how would dad feel about it and, and that kind of thing. But there, the way they handled it and kept the secret was that she was put in a town about 75 miles away <clears throat> in, in a basement apartment and the baby was delivered there and so forth. And um, when I was working on my behavioral science degree, I actually told my sister, because she, by that time, had become Jehovah's Witness, and um, she was always preaching about, you know, whatever. She'd write these long letters, and I said, excuse me, uh, I'd like to hear about your relationship. Talk to me about your relationship with Dad. And she told about standing at the court to give the baby away, and um, they said, well, do you know who the father is? And she wanted to point, it's him, it's him but you don't do that to your parents, you know, kind of thing. And um, the agony of her having to um, deny the truth was, I could sense that painfulness. Mm. Yeah. And how would you say this affected you well, overall? Well, uh, one, I... No, you didn't know, you didn't know the story yeah, until later. I... I have had at times, it's not that painful at all, but I realize I wasn't given that that warm connection with a, a father figure that I deserved and had a right to. <clears throat> and um, I haven't been that interested in men because they weren't interesting in to me. And I never wanted my dad to walk me down the aisle, you know, when I get married. And the um like i've been kind of questioning here a few times lately about how come i'm not interested in pursuing executive coaching i don't think i have anything to say to executives and yet that's probably part of that block of um not feeling both heard and honored by men in that way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you and I have talked a little bit before this episode and the level of courage that you've been able to demonstrate in the world. Where would you say that came from? Good question. Yeah, because after this, after this um, profile that talked about me being an influencer, I also about that same time, uh, another piece that kind of fits with that is I... Um, attended a online webinar out of the UK with Andy Shaw on mental strength. And I knew my schedule was not going to coincide with his very well because it was like six days of training. But I, I picked up the first day and they said, well, you know, when you're facing a tough situation, you're, maybe you have to go into a meeting or have to meet somebody that you're kind of not sure how it was going to turn out, that you first recall to mind a warm memory and hold it for 15 seconds and then go into your situation and it'll turn out much better. And so at the time, um, I had been using the story about 
being in third grade in the Christmas program and and uh, I was supposed to be a reader while the rest of the class was doing some pantomime or something. And um, I thought, well, how, how do you be a good reader? <laughs> Nobody taught me how to be a good reader. So I taught myself. I paid attention to who's on in front of people, talking to people. You had to be, be um, loud enough so they can hear you, talk slow enough so they can understand you, and look at your audience once in a while. And so at the night of the Christmas program, I had a couple of people that paid me a compliment because I was their favorite reader. And uh, so that was my warm memory that I would call, recall to mind because it made me feel so good. And being seen, you know, was interesting part of that kind of, you know. So um, I, a week or two later, not having followed all of his program, I, I said, well, why don't I just have one more memory? And so I made a list. And of that list of eight or ten things, half of them that gave me a warm feeling was in front of people. It was, it was a, a big aha for me. Maybe I was created and meant to be in front of people. And I didn't know it my whole career. This is after I retired. So um, it was one of those confirmations that... Um, being an influencer might be, God knows more than what I know about where I'm supposed to be. So the, um, I have, I've embraced that since that big aha, that being an influence, um, might be part of my role of being here on earth, you know? Mm -hmm. So am I hearing you say you went from feeling invisible to an influencer to this courageous person who was just uh, very comfortable standing in front of the massive, big crowds? Yeah, yeah. it's not something I hunger okay. for, but I welcome it. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit more about mental strength, how it helped you in your healing process. Actually, part of that healing also happened when I was in, I, I transferred with my job from uh, Seattle area to Tampa, Florida. And um, having moved across the country and not, um, well, I knew four or five people that had transferred there ahead of me, but, you know, I didn't see them very often. And, you know, I would go into work sometimes and say, well, if I needed insurance, I would go here. Where where should I go for insurance, you know, in Tampa, Florida? Or when I need a certain kind of uh, item, you know, I'd go to this store at home. Where do I need to go? <laughs> so all things were new. And um, that's scary when you don't know, you know, you're, you're not acclimated to the city and town. So I, but I started, um, I had been chewing on, the book at that same time, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And that was, it just really was a, a prime time for, for impacting my life. And yet the thing that really um, nailed it for me, I guess, was I would, I was uh, stop my foot and say, I refuse to live my life based on fear. And I used, uh, the Bible, Joshua 1 and 2, it talks about courage um, about six or eight times. Do not be afraid. Be of good courage. Be of great uh, great courage. Do not be afraid. And um, so, so far from home, it would be easy to get 
overwhelmed with that. But um, I remember my friends here had given me a goodbye party and, and somebody was going around with a camera and say, what would be your recommendation advice for Sharon as she goes across country? And one of them said, give yourself time to um, like six months before you decide you're too homesick to stay and to make new friends. And that that gave me some, you know, kind of uh, a balance of instead of fear, choose this giving yourself time to heal and um, to get acclimated. I, I think I, I remember thinking after three months, oh, I got this. <laughs> but about month four and five, oh, this is still kind of tough. And uh, okay, give yourself six months, and um, it worked. It was. A very nice piece of advice. Okay, okay. So tell me a little bit about um, how those of us who have the tools to love ourselves, no matter what has happened in our past, and listening to the heart helped you move forward in your life. Yeah, well, it, when I wrote my book, uh, I'll just hold it up here a second. Fresh Courage in Retirement, Finding Purpose, Essence, and Fulfillment. I I um, asked myself two, three times while I was reading the book about how did I love? If I don't have grandkids around and, you know, husbands and on and on and that generational thing, um, where, where's the love in my life? I had to really... Um, analyze that a bit, and I decided, well, I wouldn't be writing this if I if I didn't want to express some love. It's not for me, you know. I'm trying to help others. Um, but see, giving back to your question though, um, loving oh, loving yourself. Well, I'm still working on that, actually, Diana. You know, I I every month or two, I'm learning something new, and so here recently, I I um, started talking to my mirror in the morning and say, um, why am I incredibly beautiful, slim, and confident? Well, I haven't been slim for very many years. I, I did a bit, but um, but it was my where I want to get to and to see, see myself as incredibly beautiful is a loving thing. You know, I uh, three, four years ago, I, I put the... Um, kibosh on, on uh, that critical voice in our head about um, being uh, overweight or bigger or whatever. And I'm doing the best I can. It shut up that voice and it hasn't bothered me. I don't judge myself anymore by my size. I think maybe God loves me this way. Yeah. I love the question that you mentioned which was a slightly different from mine. How do you love when you don't have the husband and the kids and the grandkids to support your identity as a woman? How do you love? Well, I told my coach here just two, three months ago that my, my level of love is, is deep, but it's not very visible. And, and so I was making the declaration, I want to love more deeply. And even just yesterday, Diana, I was 
um, I put on some angel earrings. And I thought maybe that's where I had such a good day. But but um, the the loving myself more deeply. In fact, I remember um, kneeling next to my couch, which I don't know. I don't ever done that before, but or since, but. I, I felt in my, just under my wishbone, a very warm feeling. And it felt like God was loving me. And it was, I felt cherished. I've always wanted to feel cherished. And finally, uh, it's like loving yourself. I want somebody out there to love me. Now, how about you can love yourself first? So, so it's more about the self love first yeah, before so, reaching out yeah so when i told i want to love more deeply i i need to love my clients more deeply i need to but it is also love myself more deeply so um i uh it's it's a big job a big task and yet to affirm myself that last night i think even as i was going to sleep i i don't know how i was laying in bed or something and i just felt like this this feels so good and so warm and I can imagine God's loving me right here inside my mm-hmm. covers, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. There is space for us to love ourselves as opposed to always reaching out to looking out to those external forces and people and material things to fill in that gap. No, it's our responsibility first, right? And then extend that love out and then more love will come. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the, the switches that needs to happen around that is not judging ourselves. We're doing the best we can. And that is a, a huge, um, I don't need, go away, go away. I'll love myself first. I'll start healing by loving myself. I'll, I'll give myself my own medicine like you did for your birthday last month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a sweet dose. Lots of doses of pure sweetness. Yes. And I realized, well, if you can do it for your birthday, you really can do it every day, you know, and get better and better and better. So here's a question. We know we know that healing is possible for everyone. There's lots of suffering, lots of pain. In fact, lots of people know how to go about the process, yet they are still afraid. Um, in many cases, afraid to reconnect because of those past hurts and harm caused by other people. What would you tell someone who's in that position? Well, the the situation, like with my dad ridiculing me at the table and remembering that pain is how I processed his, how he spoke to me. Maybe he didn't mean for it to be painful and such a vivid memory, but that's how I made sense of it for me. So the start seems to be that um, 
you erase what happened there as my how I made sense of it. And um, a couple of times I've reconstructed that situation with God standing next to me or Jesus standing next to me and and realize he was there with me even then, no matter what how I processed it. And that that Jesus, God didn't mean it for harm, even though that's how it felt. So relieving myself of that um you know, are mixing the situation with my pain and God's love because he'll never forsake me, help me deal with that situation. And and being grateful for um, my dad being the provider and being the parent. And, uh, you know, there's so many lessons that we learned on the farm about um, character qualities and it wasn't all bad, but that moment in that memory can be healed by realizing that either he didn't mean it or he didn't mean to hurt me and I'm uh, kind of erasing the pain and moving forward as if that doesn't have to define me any longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I heard you say is or what landed for me is you have chosen to reframe, rewrite the narrative around that. And you have chosen to accept spiritual, godly support in that process of rewriting, reframing. Yeah. During my recovery work, I remember a couple of times going to church and this is, I'm, you know, near 40, around 40. And, um, It was one Sunday I felt so fragile in my spirit that I thought if anybody comes up behind me and says, boo, I'd wind up on the floor, you know, like a cracked eggshell. And another time or two, I remember giving people hugs, even men, with at church, uh, so I could get hugs. I needed them. And in fact, one of my favorite memories um, uh, before leaving Seattle here that um, Sunday before I had met my uncle down here in town for uh, lunch. And I shared with him since I was leaving town anyway, our family secret. And um, as we left the restaurant, he'd give me a big hug. And I told him, this is the real kind, isn't it? He was dead before the next weekend. So I so treasure that hug that even with the secret, um, I was, he, he shared his love with me and he was in an accident a few days later and didn't live through it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you've mentioned the word secret several times and I, you've already shared with us what secret you're referring to. But could you share a little bit more about what secrets, how they impact, how they can impact your life if it continues to be a secret, right? Yeah. When I was going through my my behavioral science program, um, secrets keep us stuck. Secrets um, 
hide in our body, you know, the, the trauma or whatever, uh, there's so much value in, in airing the secret because it dissipates it. It lets it out into the world and somebody else, you know, let's, but it's not stuck in our spirit, mind, and body. So um, it's very important. I, I, I've often thought how us women are good about uh, watching the lies. <laughs> and it's easier, but once you lift, it's like uh, lifting your burden when you can share with someone and they hear and understand you. That day that I realized what the secret was, I went to, a, I called one of my friends that was four or five miles away and um she just sat there and listened to me and cried with me. She cried with me. And it wasn't until the years later that I realized she had experienced something similar, very similar. And, but it was so, I was heard, I was seen, and I dissipated this secret and it was no longer unknown. I was heard. Mm -hmm. That's good. Thank you for sharing that. You were seen, you were heard. To me, that equals acceptance, which is the number one thing that we want. The number one thing we want. The number one thing we are afraid of is rejection, right? So acceptance and rejection, those two can pretty much run sent us in different directions, depending on how we process it, how we process it. So, yeah. So time really goes fast. Um, one last question. What one thing you would leave with the listeners around this theme, this topic related to isolation, loneliness, separation, um, feeling okay, invisible? So I'm going to, tell us the story about my how i dealt with loneliness um like i say i was about 22 24 years old and it was a friday night and um in those days there was um, a lot of people making ripple app dance you know they were usually brown and orange and yellow and i had chosen to make mine unique because i love being unique and i added some red and green in there so i was my aunt had started this ripple afghan for me and so i was crocheting on a Friday night in my little apartment. And um, this critical voice, you know, came and said, well, Sharon, it's Friday night, people your age, you should, you're a young lady, you should be out there socializing, you know, um, being seen publicly and bars and whatever. And I never had hung around, still haven't hung around bars and stuff. But um, I said, excuse me, I'm doing what I wanna do. I'm crocheting on my afghan. I chose to be here. I like my company, actually. So I'm not going to listen to you. And that solved my problem about feeling lonely. Not that I felt like I had a problem, but that whole authenticity about being different, I realize now is what played into my response to that critical voice. It's okay to be different that other everybody else can be out there, um, whatever. And, um, I'm doing what I choose. This is my life and I'm choosing it and I'm okay with myself. So um, 
I never had loneliness bother me again. Now, I also want to say, though, Diana, that there's 19% of baby boomers who have never had children. And that means they're going into retirement like me, not with all those kids and grandkids pointing, come to my game, come to my graduation, come to my birthday party. That's not happening. And that's that there's a big difference with those that had kids and those that don't. So I'm, I'm bringing up the, trying to bring up the awareness that um, retirement without kids is very different. And that might need to be my next book. <laughs> yeah. Retirement without kids. I didn't realize 19% of the baby boomers did never got married, never had kids. And their life is different from those of us who did, maybe, because some of us who had the kids and the grandkids are still struggling with isolation, loneliness. So, yeah, and that moves me into another topic, which we don't have time to talk about on this episode. So if I could twist your arm a little bit, are you willing to stay for a second episode? Let's see. I think I could. <laughs> yes, yes, perfect, perfect. But we can talk a little bit more about the Surgeon Generous Initiative to create opportunities for especially our elders who didn't have the kids. They're in retirement and there's this deep, deep sense and level of isolation, social disconnection. And we're not only going to talk about the, so, uh, the Surgeon General, but we will talk about what we are doing to support that initiative. Because I, I think we all have an obligation, if we can, to help improve or help dissipate this loneliness, isolation, separation being a public health crisis. This is what the Surgeon General says. Right. So, yes, thank you for saying yes. We will do a part two to this. And for our listeners, stay tuned. There's so much more to come. And I'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Growing Through Grief and being part of this loving community of women. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share and spread the word. Let's help all women become richer and more nourished in their heart so that they're able to just keep on rising. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or topic ideas, or you would like to be a guest on my show, you can reach me directly at coachingtotheheart.org. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode. In the meantime, keep on growing.